Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello, my plant friends. Thank you for joining me again here in my little backyard studio, which is just my patio uh, here in Taylor, Texas. And thank you for joining me for some more Plow and Hose Organic Gardening in Central Texas. Here we are. We are in our second full week of August. And thank goodness school is just right around the corner. And it sure is really starting to feel like a legit Texas summer in Central Texas. I mean, Finally, I mean, we've had such kind of unusually cool weather and I was perfectly content with the cooler temperatures that we've been having so far. But this past week, we've seen um, kind of a more authentic uh, summertime. But these temperatures really aren't so bad right now, at least not for me. Some of my uh, potted plants don't share that sentiment and they are not enjoying these temperatures at all. But as long as I stay on top of watering them, they're going to be fine. Plants in pots dry out a lot quicker than those in the ground and those that are like planted in the garden in raised beds. So as the temperature rises, just keep an eye on your plants. And depending on what kind of plants you have and what size pot they're in and how much sun they get and how hot it gets, Um, you might find yourself really needing to water them every single day. But that's okay because we like spending time with our plants and it's really good to spend time out in your garden and checking on your plants on a daily basis anyway. And I, for one, am really glad that I'm being more conscientious with my potted plants because if I wasn't checking on them every single day, I might not have noticed these cactus bugs that have been gnawing on my cacti. Now, I used to have a couple of spineless nopal cactus um, planted in my yard, but when we had that big freeze in February, they did not survive. They completely turned to mush after we had that freeze. So I really don't have a lot of cactus growing here um i do have some kind of newly acquired plants um things that i bought this year i've got a night blooming cereus i have an orchid cactus and then i have three different varieties of dragon fruit and they are all still small plants and those dragon fruit are really just small rooted cuttings um that haven't really done all that much just yet because they're they're new they're still little baby uh, baby plants so I was just really really annoyed to find a whole bunch of these 
orange bugs with black legs just crawling all over these plants and just going to town on them like it was, you know, like free refills at a restaurant or something. They're just sucking them dry. And they were just so many of them and all kinds of different sizes from itty bitty teeny tiny ones like the size of a pencil tip to kind of the bigger ones with big fat orange engorged bodies um, that were more the size of like a pencil eraser. Um, These guys looked familiar but um, I didn't know exactly what they were. So I immediately went inside and then looked them up on the internet and tried to figure out what I was going to do about them. And I learned pretty quickly um, through an image search that my poor plants have been infested by cactus bug nymphs. These are little baby cactus bugs that are related to stink bugs and squash bugs and leaf-footed bugs. All of those are jerk bugs. They are punks and they will suck the juices out of your plants and leave them looking really ugly and damaged and leaving them vulnerable to all kinds of other issues. Now these cactus bugs, they are really fond of and attracted to the fleshy pads and the leaves of cacti and succulents. And they have these needle-like mouth parts and they pierce the leaves and then they suck the juices right out. They don't exactly leave like holes on the plants. It's more, looks more like a dry spot where they've just sucked the juices um, from that spot. And then they like scoot over and they stick their mouth parts into another part right next to it. And they kind of like, suck the juices out of um, the spots and those are the little injection holes and since they've punctured the leaf you know it can allow pathogens um, to enter your plant and do more damage and of course you know a reduction in their normal moisture um, that can disrupt the flow of water and nutrients through the plant so was not very happy about finding these bugs on my plants. Cactus bug nymphs look a whole lot like baby leaf-footed bugs. Both of them have orange bodies with black legs, but they're shaped a little bit differently. The leaf-footed bug nymphs have these bulbous back ends that stick right out and cactus bug nymphs are flat and teardrop shape they kind of remind me of like a tick Um, these guys are slower moving than the leaf footed nymphs so they're easier to um, to catch but I'm gonna warn you they are pretty delicate and just touching them with a little bit of pressure will cause them um, to burst (laughs) and crushing them is super, super gross because when you crush them, 
with your fingers, they will just splooge out all of that green plant juice that they've been uh, sucking up, and it's gross. But I gotta say that um, squishing bugs is 100% organic, and it doesn't cost anything, so you can do it. I know you can. I used to hate squashing bugs, but I've I've gotten pretty ruthless about it. But if that is just really too much for you to stomach, you can spray them with insecticide eel soap and kill those nymphs. It's really easy to make and it's super cheap too. All you have to do is fill a spray bottle with water and then add a tablespoon or so of dish soap and then shake that up and spritz it over any soft body insects like um, those cactus bug nymphs, aphids, spider mites. It helps um, a lot if you add some sort of oil to your insecticidal soap. You can use any vegetable oil that you have in your kitchen or you can add a little bit of orange oil or horticultural oil or neem oil to your mixture. But it's not recommended to spray these products with oil in them when the temperatures are above 90 degrees. Any spray-on products that contain oil can damage plants in this heat. And that's because oil helps insecticidal soap stick to the bugs. So it can, um, it helps it work. But the oil that also is going to stick to the plants and it doesn't degrade as quickly before it gets too hot. You know, earlier in the summer, when we had cooler morning temperatures, the oil had time to degrade. But now that it's really quite warm in the mornings and the sun is a lot more intense earlier in the day, coating your plants with a product with oil in them, that oil is going to act like an insulation. It's going to cause leaves to shrink and curl and it really intensifies the heat and it kind of cooks the plant and that is totally not good and probably not what you're wanting to do. But if you have a big bug problem like I've been having, you're really going to want to address that just as soon as you can. If you are able to move your plants to a shady spot, do that. If not, the best thing to do is just wait until it's cooler to treat the plants, either early in the morning or late in the afternoon. So you can avoid coating your plants with an oily product in the heat of the day or when it's gonna be in direct sun. Don't apply it if it's going to be in direct sunlight. Even though it's really not ideal for me to be using insecticidal soap on those cactus bugs right now um, because of the heat, I am. I am because spraying is much more convenient for me. And hand-picking off all of these nymphs and trying to catch them all and squish them um, for one thing that's really hard to do and it's gross but I figure if I am in danger of losing my plants to the these stupid bugs then it's probably worth the risk of treating them with soapy water and just a little tiny bit of neem oil 
because I really want to save them. If you are interested in learning more about neem oil, please go check out the June 20th episode of Plow and Hose Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. It's episode number 24, and be sure to download that one if you want to learn um, more about using neem oil in your garden. It's really a good product for treating diseases and pests, and it's organic. Horticultural oil is one of those products that is a bit of an enigma. It's generally acceptable for organic gardening, but many commercial brands are heavily processed because many of them contained refined petroleum or mineral oil, and they also include emulsifiers. Emulsifiers allow oil and water to combine and then not separate. The molecules stay mixed together so your solution remains stable. So you don't have to shake it up every single time that you want to use it. There are plant-based horticultural oils available. Just read the labels if you are wanting to avoid petroleum products. Some people... um, don't want to. It is kind of a weird thing to spray on your garden, but horticultural oils are primarily used for spraying trees and shrubs and whatnot during the winter time when these plants are dormant and they don't have any leaves. Sometimes they are um, actually marked and branded and sold uh, under the name dormant oil. So, you know, it's just like a little reminder of when you use it folks um, use horticultural oil a lot of times on their fruit trees. They spray them with it before the trees um, set leaves or flowers so early in the spring. And what it does is the oil coats the limbs and the trunk. And if there are any insects or eggs on the tree, the horticultural oil will suffocate um, the insects and the bugs. These dormant oils and horticultural oils work differently than neem oil. Neem oil actually contains compounds that are toxic to bugs, but horticultural oils aren't toxic or poisonous. They're pretty neutral. When the oil coats the bugs, the oil kills them because it smothers them. It just covers them all up and they suffocate. Neem oil can be used during the growing season. Horticultural oils are really the most effective when the plants are dormant. Both neem and horticultural oils don't discriminate when it comes to killing bugs. They don't know the difference between good bugs and bad bugs. So please be mindful and very intentional when using them. Both really are more gentle and earth-friendly than synthetic chemical pesticides because both of them degrade um, pretty quickly and they are really less likely to build up in the soil. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music coming out of our little station broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. 
while you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Host Facebook page and share it with all your gardening friends or head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and download the Plow and Host podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes, leave a review. It's just so easy. You just have to click, click, click. Type up a little sentence about what you like about the show and submit it. So easy. And this really does help others find the show. In downloading the Plow and Host podcast, um, some of those shows... That helps me get show statistics. All right, let's get back to the plants. Even though my dragon fruit plants and my night blooming cereus were covered in those stupid, gross cactus bug nymphs, and now they have bite marks, I do think they're going to be okay. I mean, really, honestly, only time will tell. Um, if they're going to develop some secondary, secondary issue like a disease or decay, but I try to be optimistic and I'm optimistic because I really want them to survive because they seem like really special plants to me. And I think it'd be really, really cool to grow my own dragon fruit. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, dragon fruit and night blooming cereus are cacti, and they're actually pretty closely related. They're like cousins, and they're in the Cellini cereus family. Both are climbing cacti, and they form these long vine-like leaves. They kind of grow in um, chain-like segments, and both of them only bloom at night night blooming cereus are usually grown for their very unusual but beautiful and highly fragrant white flowers but they actually can set fruit if they get pollinated dragon fruit and night blooming cereus are not self-pollinating and they need a buddy plant in order to set fruit dragon fruit take about eight months um, for a cutting to grow large enough to put on flowers. But once you get flowers, you have the opportunity to have fruits. But because they only bloom at night, when they grow out in nature, they, uh, they depend on moths and bats for pollination. Otherwise, you got to hand pollinate them to get some fruit. I've never eaten the fruit from a night blooming cereus, but dragon fruits are pretty damn tasty. And depending on the variety you have, they can be yellow or red or kind of like a reddish pink kind of magenta color. The fruits actually grow quite big, like the size of, I don't know, like a large russet potato, but they're fleshy. And the outer, um, the outer coating is kind of leathery and it's got like these um, scales on them. That's why they're called dragon fruits, I think. When you cut into them, the insides, um, some of them are white 
and some of them are that magenta color. Um, and they're full of these little black seeds that kind of remind me of kiwi seeds or black sesame seeds. Um, the texture is like a ripe melon, but they have like this nice crunch. And so they are sweet and fruity and crunchy. And the flavor to me is like a cross between a pear and a kiwi. I think they are really refreshing to eat. Night blooming serious plants have flat drapey stems. On the other hand, dragon fruit leaves, um, they're more dimensional. They have three sides. And if you take like a cross section of them, they look like a three pointed star. And because of this extra side, they are a little more rigid and upright than night blooming Sirius. Both of, uh, both of these plants are able to form aerial roots. Um, that just means they put out roots above the ground and they use these to pull moisture from the air. And you can actually take a cutting with, that has aerial roots sprouted and just place it on top of the soil. You don't even have to bury it. And those aerial roots will adapt and they'll root into the soil and then they start functioning as regular roots. While I um, was doing research on um, both these plants, um, I came across um, a really interesting page and I learned that dragon fruit plants are often used as rootstock for grafting and you can graft other types of cactus uh, to them. You can graft moon cactus and Christmas or Thanksgiving um, cacti onto dragon fruit and then you can have a cool new plant that is has a different shape. I think, I think that's so cool that you can do that. Um, grafting just means that two varieties of plant are joined together to grow a plant that has desirable attributes of both plants. The bottom parts are called the rootstock and the upper parts of the grafted plant are called scion. So here's a, just a quick example. So a grower will use dragon fruit as the rootstock and what they do with this, they, they root it into soil and then once that it's, it's all rooted and ready to grow, then they make little slits in it with like a razor or a thin knife and they make these slits in it and then they slide a little bit of Christmas cactus leaf into the slit and they let that all heal up and the Christmas cactus actually grows into the dragon fruit and it's part of the um, part of the fruit and it, it gets nutrients from um, from the dragon fruit rootstock and you can get really creative with them so a new plant looks more like a tree or a shrub and so the dragon fruit is the trunk and then the Christmas cactus scion those will grow and form these drapey branches and they look really cool especially once the Christmas cactus starts to bloom so it's really neat and unusual 
So if you're into grafting, that's a really cool thing that you can try to do. You can also graft different varieties of dragon fruit onto existing plants. Um, so if you have a really robust dragon fruit plant, but you want to grow another variety, you can actually graft new cuttings onto it. And thanks to the World Wide Web, it's really not that difficult to find different varieties of cuttings to buy. And you can just buy them and you can either root them on their own by planting them or you can graft them onto another dragon fruit that you already have. Dragon fruit is native to Mexico and Central America. Night blooming Sirius. Those are native to um, Arizona and the Sonoran Desert. And I just have to laugh because um, I forgot to turn the pump off and that sucking noise that you just heard is the pull pump. Anyway, um, both Night Blooming Sirius and Dragon Fruit, they do grow well here in Central Texas, just as long as you plant them in containers and make sure that you move them inside when the temperatures start to cool off. They hate cold weather, so bring them inside when it um, before it gets down to 35 degrees. If it's going to get that cold, yeah, just bring them on inside. Dragon fruit um, is actually a little more finicky about our intense summer heat. Even though it's a tropical cactus, it really doesn't like intense sunlight. So be sure your dragon fruit plants get afternoon shade. Night blooming Sirius is a whole lot more tolerant of our super intense sun and extreme heat after all um, another name for it is queen of the desert it takes um, this plant just a little bit longer to set flowers sometimes up to three or four years but those gorgeous flowers really make it worth the wait they only bloom once a year and the blossoms only last for a day so they're pretty special and I have a friend and a neighbor who she just absolutely adores her night blooming Sirius and she takes pictures and she posts on Facebook um, about this time every year uh, when her plants start to put on buds and then she'll like show the development of them and then you know we're all sitting there watching Facebook um, we're all on uh, bloom watch and we're all kind of like wondering when Susan's plant is going to bloom and sometimes she catches it in, uh, in full bloom um, other times she goes to goes on to bed she's not going to stay up all night and I don't blame her because even though they are striking and exotic and beautiful and really special sometimes it's just best to put yourself first and get a good night's sleep too much work to indulge divas and drama queens. Make your life easier. Go to bed. Night blooming Sirius and dragon fruit plants only bloom at night and they depend on moths and bats for pollination. Now, I think moths are, they're alright. They're okay. I mean, most of them aren't flashy like butterflies, but I can appreciate them. They are important pollinators both 
during um, the daytime and then also at night. Like most creatures, I personally prefer if they stay outside my house and not come inside. I, I don't know why they really would want to be inside my house. Um, so they really should just get smart and be smart enough to just stay outside because if they don't, if they come inside my house, it may not be a very pleasant experience for them because they got to go. Bats, though, I love bats. I love them. I don't really know why, but I do. I absolutely love bats and stupid Dr Dracula has given them this horrible reputation and so unfair. They are so demonized and people are afraid of them. And it's so not right. I think it's so unfortunate for poor bats. Um, some bats do carry rabies and the risk is very real. But dogs and cats and even livestock, cows, cows, can transmit rabies. And we are much more likely to interact with felines, canines, and bovines than we are bats. I mean, bats really don't want to hang out with us anyway. Bats in Central Texas, especially Austin, um, they catch a break. Um, Austin is known for all the bats that live there. Um, the ones that live under the Congress Avenue Bridge in downtown Austin, those are all Mexican free-tail bats. And, but we actually have a small colony of Mexican free-tail bats right here in Taylor. And if you're interested in seeing them, they roost under the overpass at 1st and Main over by the railroad tracks. There aren't nearly as many as bats there, but it's still really cool to be able to just walk down there and you can get a whole lot closer uh, to them than you can in Austin. Bats are actually really, really important to agriculture. Those Mexican free-tail bats that we have here in Taylor and in Austin, they mainly eat insects and they eat a lot of them. And a lot of those insects like to eat crops. And around here, our bats eat lots and lots of caterpillars that munch on corn and cotton plants. And I was reading that here in Texas, Mexican free-tail bats save corn farmers about $1.4 billion every year through reduced crop damage and pesticide use. And across the US, bats save farmers about $50 billion every year. And that is just so incredible to me, especially considering how maligned they are. I mean, I think that bats should become like the official mascot of corn farmers everywhere. And I don't know how we make that happen, but I gotta find a way to, to do that. <laughs> anyway, other types of bats are um, 
important pollinators in the Southwest. They are essential to pollinating many of the flowers that only bloom at night, like night blooming cereus. They also pollinate many other cacti and agave plants. In other parts of the world, bats are responsible for pollinating bananas and cacao plants. So without bats, we would not have bananas or chocolate. So think about that before you uh, hate on bats. In the United States, most of the bats that we have are insect eating bats. There are only three species of pollinator bats in the US. And while um, we have them here in Texas, they do tend to stick to Western Texas. And we really don't see them here since they prefer those desert plants. Another great thing about having bats around is they love eating mosquitoes and they eat thousands and thousands and thousands of them. So think about that. Can you imagine how awful mosquitoes would be without bats? So bats are totally awesome. I love bats. And we got to be nicer to bats. All right, we're kind of at the slow time of the summer. Not a super whole lot is going on right now. We do have that small planting window for planting another round of our summer favorites. We are halfway so through August, so if you want to plant more corn, squash, both summer squash and winter squash, southern peas, warm season greens, um, pepper, and eggplant transplants, and okra, you need to get them planted this week. This time of year, um, as we get a little bit further into August, we're able to plant more beans, cucumbers, Irish potatoes, tomato transplants, and then at the end of the month, we can plant turnip seeds. I know a whole lot of folks are anxious to plant something different, some of their other favorites like lettuce, kale, cool season greens, broccoli, carrots, and beets, but it's still way too warm for them right now. We need to wait until it cools down a bit. All of those plants, they hate our Texas summer heat and they just won't tolerate it. So don't bother until it cools down a little bit more. Fortunately, most of these cooler season crops can be planted in September. So you can wait and you can um, put them in your garden in September. But of course, you can go ahead and start most of these inside and then transplant the seedlings in September. All of these do really well as transplants, except for the root veggies like turnips, carrots, and beets. They don't transplant well. All right, I am just about done with this week's show, but real quick, I want to remind you to keep all your plants nice and watered. Potted plants need to be watered pretty much every single day in this heat. Raised beds, keep an eye on them. For sure, they're going to want to be watered at least once a week for um, a good 30 minutes. Um, also, plan on replacing your mulch when you put in all your new baby plants for your fall garden. Fresh mulch is going to help keep the soil temperature cool 
and retain moisture. Those two things are super duper important for a successful fall harvest. All right, guys. Thank you guys for joining me again this week. Y'all have a kick-ass week and have fun in your gardens. Production assistance provided by KBSR, Black Sparrow Radio. Original music created by Alex Cuervo. Discover more of his music at alexcuervo.tv. If you love plants and gardening in Central Texas, be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and never miss seasonal information on Plow and Hose. Plow and Hose is written and recorded at my home in Taylor, Texas.